worship for you this morning. This is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They all fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Amen, let's worship him this morning. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loud
hope is held in your hand when castles crumble and breath is fleeting upon this rock I will stand
Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. When somebody has done something for a long time and they quit doing it, like I have with preaching, except occasionally, I don't think I'm much different than people who would, whether it's preaching or something else. You would look and see what, what in the course of the decades did you do or not do. And I found myself a couple of months ago making a shift in, in my Bible readings and, and looking at them and wondering, why didn't I ever preach on that, that, that text? You know, was it just I never got around to it? Was there some reason I didn't? And so when Nicole asked me to um, do here, be here this morning and do this, I was reading Genesis. And I thought, I don't remember ever preaching on the Tower of Babel. And I looked through my records and I couldn't find any time that I had done that because whether I can remember or not isn't a real reliable test anymore. So anyway, today's passage is going to come from Genesis. So if you'll stand, we'll read our text together. There we go. Now the whole world had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, <coughs> they are one people, and they, all, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. This is God's word for us today. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, 
having six weeks to consider your text, pray about it, and study it, leads you to find some things you never thought you would know before. And I'm going to share some of those conclusions with you because I've now come to the, to the opinion that, that this story is about more than what I've always heard it to be, about God, men sinning and thinking they were going to take God's place and building this tower to reach up into heaven. Well, it doesn't quite say that it's to reach up into heaven. It just says it's tops there. So we'll consider some of that. But one thing I want you to consider is that this story is a turning point in the book of Genesis. The reason I don't think I ever noticed it before is because I, like most of us, assume that Genesis is the story of man, kind, people. It's not. We are critical to the story, but it's not our story. It's God's story. And once we begin to read Genesis as God's story, we'll begin to read it differently than we've read it before. So that's what I'm going to try to point us towards today. Because not just Genesis, but I think the entire Bible should be read as God's story. So that we understand, beginning here, how God's purposes are explained, how they are understood, and how they are accomplished. And so the material that we're going to that the Genesis covers, particularly in these first eleven chapters, conveys how God's purposes work their way through the events that occurred after creation. So, if you're going to learn something, sometimes you have to unlearn something. Now, I don't want any show of hands. But how many of you skip the genealogies? I don't want hands, but I'm looking at faces. (laughs) Guilt's written all over them. Yeah, some of you dutifully read them. Others don't. But guess what? The genealogies isn't what they aren't what we always thought they were. I mean, old Bishop Usser even tried to count history up by by counting the the generations and messed it up badly. These passages have another purpose other than to record the passing of generations. They're literary devices. There are 11 of them in the Old Testament, and there are two of them in the New Testament. When it says the generations of, it's it's what is technically known as a toldot. And the toldot marks a shift in focus. It's to take the reader's attention away from what we've just been reading and realize we're going to look at something else. And these first 11 chapters are full of that. Oh, by the way, there are two, the two in the New Testament we'll get to at the end of our time together this morning. Here are the first four. Genesis 2, which introduces a uh, 2-4. Genesis 2-4, which introduces a passage from 2-4 to 26. The second is Genesis 5-1. 
And that introduces a passage beginning in 5.1 going all the way through 6.8. Third is 6.9, which introduces a passage that ends up at 7.29. And the fourth is 10.1, which concludes with our text this morning, 11, chapter 9. The first told lot focuses our attention on God's purpose for and with humankind in general. The second, Adam and early generations of humans. The third, the growing wickedness of humanity. Even the sons of God. Now, don't be confused by that term. There are those who think they were angels. Because, as we'll see in a minute, their wickedness was was coming to earth and, and joining human captivity. But anyway, all the way up to Noah. The fourth is man's continued effort to usurp God's position and God's purposes for creation. The one we're considering today. What's what's happened since God created? What changes? In chapter 2, Satan appears, and he convinces Eve and Adam that with just a little bit of effort, they could become like God, and that God's really trying to keep them from making this transition. And so the temptation is a temptation about acquiring knowledge, Knowledge that will make them have more godlike qualities than they already possess. Because as we know, humans were created in the image of God. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for them, and it isn't enough for us. The biblical connotation of knowledge is experience. And boy, did those humans experience evil. Chapter 4 introduces the idea of fratricide, brother killing brother, and chaos because of it in the human community. The chaos is expanded and encompasses more and more of creation through chapter 6. And the sons of God abandon their station in heaven, take human wives, and produce the Nephilim, the giants of old. Noah's sons passed through the flood. Creation survives. But so does the rebellion started by Adam and Eve in the garden. Now what happened in the garden? They were put out. And cherubim were placed to guard the tree of life, so that these rebels could not continue and live forever in their state of rebellion. And we come to Babel. You know, the earliest stories related to Babel aren't in Scripture. The earliest stories in in the story of Babel come from several sagas from the Sumerian 
civilization. In fact, Sumerian civilization has the earliest stories of all these things that we've covered so far, captured in their sagas. Critics of scripture have used that fact to say that the Bible is not what we claim it to be. And do you know why they've been able to do that? Because we've given them a foothold. We're the ones that make it possible for them to criticize the Bible. Because we believe in our arrogance that we understand all these things completely and that we can't learn anything new. It's not true. Anybody want to admit to being too old to learn something new here today? This I'll take a show of hands. Oh, okay. So all of you are saying you're not too old to learn something new. We're not going to ask if you're too young. But as parents, sometimes we think that. <clears throat> Which leads me to something that's going to challenge you. I don't believe, after my study, that these first 11 chapters were part of the original understanding of Jews and Hebrews of God. I think their story begins in chapter 12. Because the faith of the fathers is based upon what? The obedience of Abraham to God's call. To leave and go into a country that he didn't know, and it leads to this whole story that results in them being in Egypt and then being need to be rescued. It doesn't begin with creation. It's a story of God establishing a covenant, the covenant which guides their lives and controls their lives. And this, this story begins with Abram and, it, and it's strengthened in Moses. And then something happens throughout Scripture, throughout the, 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 the books of Samuel and Kings. We read over, well, you go all the way back to Judges, about how they continually turn their backs on what God wants them to do. And so the, the, the God of promise, the God of love, the God of mercy is rejected. His covenant is rejected for these people to follow their own plan. And what happens to him? A lot. But the last thing that I think we need to consider is the fall of Jerusalem. And with the fall of Jerusalem, where do they end up? Babylon. <clears throat> Guess where Babylon is? Now, don't tell me Iraq. That's too easy. Babylon is on the plain of Shinar. It's in the eastern edge of the Mesopotamian Empire, known as Samaria. The Sumerian, or Sumer, it's actually known as Sumer. Now I want to put yourself, you to put yourself in the place of these exiles. They've been told all their lives that God would keep them safe because he was in a covenant with them. 
And now they find themselves in Babylon. Slaves, captives, family and friends dead, their city in, in ruins. And the, they have a number of theological questions as well as personal and political questions because gods were gods of places. Can, can Yahweh still be their God in Babylon? That's a question. Is the covenant still hold? They had broken the covenant. They had failed God. And, and, and God demonstrates that the covenant was now no longer protected. They're in captivity. So you want to talk about people who go crushed and questioning and doubting. It's these captivities, these captives. And when they get there, they find the stories of other religions, Zoroastrianism, and others that talk about different things. And undoubtedly, some of them left the faith of our fathers, of their fathers, but some didn't. And the ones who didn't had to deal with this crushing, crushing change in their lives. But they also had to deal with new material. You see, I believe that the inspiring Spirit of God led these people to look at their situate, look at their material from their new situation and expand their understanding of God. Because even though we don't act like it sometimes, we don't know everything about God. We can't answer for him all the time. So here's what they had to deal with. They had to deal with the saga of Gilgamesh and the saga of Ink. In Merkar, in Merkar, the saga of In Merkar was very similar to what the Tower of Babel is. Now, Jewish scholars claimed that it was the grandson of Abraham, uh, not Abraham, of uh, Noah, that built the Tower of Babel. His name was Nimrod. You'll find him listed in chapter 10. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you want to compare these two names, in Merkar and Nimrod, <coughs> I don't, you, you, you may have heard this before in, in, in people talking about how Old Testament words are formed, is that the consonants are much more important than the vowels. And these three names share a common base in M R. High probability that they are the same person. Described in two different languages. I used to work with a pastor named Johanna. Oh, that's can you Kirundi for John? Are you? Same name. So where does that bring us? 
It brings us to the point that these people are dealing with the story that we're reading about Babel. And Nimrod and Enmerkar both built cities and both built temples. And so the covenant God that the people went into Babylon questioning comes out of Babylon in Jewish faith as the creator God. The idea of creation doesn't show up in Old Testament text until after Babylon. And if you want to read more about those, those types of things, read the last half of, of um, Isaiah. And you'll see the theology of eschatology shifting from being what God's going to do for the Jews to what God's going to do in the world. The crisis of the fall of Jerusalem, the crisis of having to face ideas and other religions caused these people to expand their understanding of God so that they became more than just a group of people that had been delivered from Egypt. Okay, I've been seeing it, so I guess I might as well face it, come to grips with it. Some of you have jumped away from my sermon. Now I'm going to try to reel you back in because I see on your face a question that I've had to deal with it for some time now. The question is, does this man not believe that Moses wrote Genesis? Let me put your mind to rest. That's exactly what I'm saying. There's ample evidence in the, in, the, in the literature, and just because it's our tradition doesn't make it fact. You know who I think wrote Genesis? The Holy Spirit. So, what we've read so far, or what I've summarized for you so far, has established two conditions that persist throughout Scripture. A good God has created a purposeful and good creation. And that part of creation which God has conferred literally parts of himself within isn't satisfied to be creatures. They reject their position and seek a higher position for themselves. Paul will eventually say, call this sin. Theologians today call it the sin condition. And the acts of the sin condition are called sins. The cluding story of what I think are the, is the introduction to Genesis from chapter 2 to chapter 11, or, yeah, chapter 11 demonstrates the persistence of sin. Babel demonstrates that after the flood, the grace that God extended to Noah and his family isn't enough. The rebellion continues. Babel's a logical extension of, of the garden. And God acted in the garden 
to protect his creation from the, the, the rebellion of man, and he's going to act in Babel to protect it once again. <coughs> in the garden, he, he protects the tree of life. And in Babel, he diminishes our collective potential. Because you see what's happened up to till, up till Babel, what we've seen about has been individual sin. And what we find in Babel is organized sin. People putting their minds together, a social response to the rebellion. And God's going to take action again to limit the damage. The multiplication of languages. Humanity has the ability to pool resources and abilities and experience to guard themselves. This story says they're, they're guarding themselves against the capriciousness of God. You may not have noticed it, but they burnt bricks. Burnt bricks are an expensive thing to do in a, in a country, particularly where you can use sun-dried bricks. Sun-dried bricks are about the size of concrete blocks. And they've just been mud squashed together and dried in the sun. And they're great. And they hold up. Uh, Brenda and I lived in a house in Burundi that had been built in 1944 of mud-dried bricks. And it was fine. Because they put burnt bricks on the outside. They keep the, the, the weather from diminishing the quality of the burnt bricks. And now they use cement mortar which wasn't available to Nimrod. He used this tar stuff called bitumen. And archaeologists have discovered evidence of a, t a tower that was left unfinished. It had reached almost 40 feet in height. And there is evidence there that, that they had never sealed it off because there were burnt bricks on the inside I mean, I'm sorry, there were sun-dried bricks on the inside and burnt bricks on the outside with bitumen to keep it waterproof. Why would they need to keep it waterproof? To guard against the next flood. Can you think of anything worse? These people were going to protect themselves against God. Okay, we do the same thing. We are guilty of exactly the same thing. For them, a city with a flood shelter is needed. What kind of shelters do we think we need against the acts of God? Because you see, Babel is the birthplace of the primary human occupation throughout history. Buffering ourselves against the intentions and acts of God. Babel is human efforts to develop human processes and purposes that have become corporate, that have become things we share in order to buffer ourselves from what God will do next. It's easy to assume that by the time of the Tower of Babel, there were 
humanity's history was like 90,000 generations. Since then, probably eight. For 8,000 generations, our primary purpose is to develop our own purposes and means of taking care of ourselves. Now, if you don't listen now, you'll think I'm against all kinds of progress, and I wish we were still living in bands of groups of 60 people wandering around in, in the bush. We would make sure that we stay close to our grandkids all the time. But I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you need to put this in the context of how much of what we have done has turned out so badly. How many of the things that we've tried to do have turned out to, to, to put us in more difficulty than, than they did in the first place? Amassing food stocks, learning to, learning to domesticate plants and, and animals is a good thing, isn't it? It, it, it pushes starvation away. Who, who could fault humanity for doing that? Well, I mean, we'd existed for 90,000 generations before we started doing that. Do you know what scientists have learned? Do you know how, do you know how many of our diseases are the result of us cohabitating with Domesticated animals? Oh, and cohabitating is the right word. Now, we, we you know, we're, you, none of you have ever seen, you wouldn't bring a pig in the house, would you? Well, a lot of my neighbors in Africa would bring their cows in. They had a room, in fact, dedicated to cows because their neighbors would steal them. Or they'd just wander off at night. Or a wildcat would get in and do something. So they came in the house. If they're doing that today, how long, for how long do you think what they were doing thousands of years ago? The, the, the strategy to increase and improve our food supply on the surface, which is positive, leads to negative things. You see, our efforts to guard against the dangers of God's creation puts us in risk because of our own devices. The diseases we got from pigs are small compared to some of the other stuff we have to live with. Standing armies were the result of increased food supplies. Populations that lived in groups of 60 or less had conflicts, but nothing you could call war. War is the unintended consequences of the agricultural revolution. Is it a good thing? It may be a necessary thing. But who could call it good and a part of God's intended purpose for creation? The movement from subsistence economies, which is what it is when you're growing your own food and or at least gathering or whatever, the movement from subsistence economies was really kind of slow. And in fact, they're still, they still exist today. But the development of market economies began with 
the, the voyages of exploration. And the increased sophistication in economic life has only led to new, power, new bases of power and new ways to dominate. And to, uh, even to the point that not only are we dominating our neighbors, we dominate countries halfway around the world. Is this God's purpose for creation? Paul said, get a job so you can have something to share. I wonder if that's taught in business schools. Because greed and covetousness have become natural, national characteristics. The close companion of economic development is technological development. My grandfather told my mother that she could not go to bed reading books because they ruin her eyes. My mother told me I had to quit watching so much television because it would ruin my eyes. Now we have a special vitamin that allows you to watch screens as much as you want to without burning your eyes. Technological development has been the, the, the twin of economic development, and they go hand in hand. They couldn't help themselves. And it was, it was the, the creation of a harnessing of energy. <clears throat> First steam, and then coal, and then petroleum, which made the Industrial Revolution possible and enabled us to have the standard of living that we have. question is, is it going to bite us in the you-know-what? Having our unintended consequences to our, the creation of our lifestyle damage God's creation. You see, we're always trying to find a way to hedge our bets with God. And now we got to find ways to hedge our bets with the things that we've created ourselves. Not the things that God created, but the risk that we've created. And when I grew up, it was the threat of nuclear war. That we could destroy ourselves instantly. Not by what God had created, but by what man had done with God's creation. Babel. Babel is the place where that comes home most clearly in Scripture. Well, I say that, but then I would have you some point read Ecclesiastes 7.29. I stumbled on this last week after we had to deal with some things in, 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 in teaching of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, See, this alone I found, that God made human beings straightforward, but they have devised many schemes. 
early scientists were very often churchmen. They made discoveries like the earth rotated around the sun instead of the sun rotating around the earth. And that was not theologically palatable. They speculated that the earth was a sphere and not a flat plane. That was not theologically palatable at the time. And the church's response to this expansion of of information and this expansion of knowledge was to start a war, an intellectual war with these things, and to ban the churchmen, the very monks and priests that were making these decisions, and ban them from the church. Guess what? The church has lost that war. And all we have done is put ourselves in an isolated place, and it's because we did not have the grace and humility that those Jewish captivity captives had to look at a new situation that's created, a new world that is being emerging, and say, God, what would you have me learn here? What can I learn about you, and what can I learn about myself? But no, we are slaves to our tradition. They have built a wall around us that is impenetrable. And it results in the churches that were once strong in my youth diminishing. Other churches will pop up, but that's the way God works. People that are willing to embrace who God can be and be understood to be, those people and those places of faith will prosper. So you've heard my my story. From Adam and Eve to the plain of Sinar, the rebellion continues. And then there's a, a fifth told dot in 1110. And what is the result of that shift? The call of Abram. You see, no matter what obstacle we put up to God working his purpose in creation, he's got a solution. He can shift the focus. Do we recognize them? Well, you know, Babel was, is, was a a play on words that meant confusion. One part of the reason that it was used is because the word that shares the same root, Belel, means gates of God. It's, it, it, it appears that the, the Hebrew writers wanted you to, to get the idea that Babel, confusion, and finding God are close together. And if you can't live with uncertainty and chaos, you cannot find God. Because that's the sea we've got to trepass. We've got to get through that. God's not to be found in our neat little solutions and answers. God's purposes 
and God's direction are hard won. But it can't be found by rebellion either. So I told you that NMR is the base for both Nimrod and Ekmar. Well, guess what happens to the Hebrew word when you put a D on it and get Nimrod? Nimrod is the Hebrew word for rebel. Rebel. The human condition is rebellion. It continues throughout all of these transitions. And God deals with it. Well, I promised you <coughs> that we'd touch on the two kolots in, in, in the New Testament. One of them is, is found in Matthew chapter 1, right at the beginning. Now, don't go looking for it. Well, you can if you want. I don't care. I can talk while you read. But the, the shift in focus is from Abraham to Jesus. And don't you think that's quite appropriate for somebody that's writing a gospel to Jewish people? To say without saying it? I mean, you don't want to be offensive and to say you've got to leave Abraham behind, do you? You can't be that offensive. You just nudge them towards Jesus. That's what Abraham does. I mean, that's what Matthew does. Luke writes the other one. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, this told is shifting the focus from Jewish tradition to the creator God of the entire world. Huh. Can the gospel be written to do both? Can the gospel be written to point people, oh, you know, to a Jewish answer to Abraham? And can it be pushed... To, to, to deal with a Gentile answer to Abraham? Well, it seems so. Because that's what their purposes were. And that's who their audiences were. Because the life and death and resurrection of Jesus makes it possible for you and me to insert a toll dot in our lives. I bet you've never heard a preacher tell you you need to do that as an, an act of discipleship before, but you do. You need to insert a toll dot in your life. All right. Do you remember a time when you made a personal choice, a, a decisive decision to follow Jesus? That's a toll dot, my friends. That's a toll dot. Do you remember the crisis in your life when, when it was maybe a crisis of faith, when a pastor let you down, when a good friend betrayed you, and you said, no matter what, I am following Jesus. It's a toll dot. In my ministry, I have seen a number of people unable to put a toll dot in their life. 
and the death of a child. A critical accident. The loss of a fortune, the loss of a job. Something that they've lost has caused them to become stuck in life. None able to move beyond that situation because they have not found a way to put a toll dot in their life right there. And Jesus came to the garden. Interesting. Jesus came to the garden. And he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Was it? Evidently not. He got out from the garden, and they came after him. And Jesus put a toll dot in history. Not just his life, but in history. And he went to the cross. Now, we're going to deal in just a minute with what Jesus did on the cross. But we just observed the Christian response to Babel. Pentecost Sunday. You never thought about Pentecost and Babel in the same sentence before, have you? What happened in Pentecost? They didn't speak one language, but they understood a language being spoken. All of them, which is the opposite of what happened in Babel. Because very likely they didn't start speaking a different language. They just couldn't understand each other anymore. And in Pentecost, the... The circle was brought back, and a language, the language of the Holy Spirit, makes it possible for people to understand each other. And when we don't understand, fellow Christians, when we don't understand a lot, it's because we're not letting the Spirit guide our hearing. We pray a lot about the Spirit guiding our talking, We should pray more about the Spirit guiding our hearing. Well, now, when did Jesus put that toll dot in his life? When did Jesus demonstrate the trust in God that was impossible? Well, we only read a little bit about it in the New Testament, but I'm going to ask you to follow along. I'm not going to make you stand. It's way too long. But Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross. I want you to hear his toll dot. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In our ancestors, and you, our ancestors, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not human, 
scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They sneer at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. If the praise team would come while we finish this reading, I'd appreciate it. Many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving, roaring lion. I am poured out <coughs> like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They bound my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly. To my aid, deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. I will tell you, tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. God forgive us for saying that Jesus felt deserted on the cross. Jesus was calling to mind the very psalm 
that would enable him in this life situation to insert a toll dot that would take him from what was before to what was to come with faith and trust and hope in God. You may be in the middle of a situation where you need a toll dot. God can give you that grace. Your Christian brothers and sisters can help you struggle through and gain it and pray with you about it. But you've got to insert it. You've got to be the one who acts in faith. Because I guarantee you, the creator of the universe works against our rebellious nature. And when we refuse to put in a toll dot, we are Nimrod all over again. Let's pray. Open our hearts and open our minds. Let us see in you our hope. Let us see ourselves trusting you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Before we sing, I want you to remember one passage from the New Testament. Remember the guy who came to Jesus? I think he had a child, I think a daughter, but a child that was about to die. And, and Jesus told him, go, your faith has made her well. Or no, Jesus said, do you believe? And the man's response was, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. You see, the problem is, our church tradition says, you got to stop with, I believe. You never get to a told dot if that's where you stop. Let's sing. Amen. You can stand with us if you're able. I love the reminder that we need God's grace, and that's absolutely what we're going to sing about, just a reminder that we need him, that we can't do this without him, and just like Jesus, that we have an opportunity this morning to cry out to him and ask him to give us that grace.
by your side. 